house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. professor at the top of his field but in a moment you get car trouble every other day can i give you a lift everything will change when i come in don't fall in love with me coleman you're just a man and a woman now did you hear something what is it? it's my ex-husband you can't go out there it's crazy yeah so am i Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast coming on to you by saying that we're taking on a lover before just staring at you blankly. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, spewing my sorrows onto my favorite caged bird, Joe Reed. <laughs> yeah. This... That fucking scene, man. <laughs> this movie is very... There's There's levels to it. And I don't mean, like, great and bad. I mean, like, okay and unwatchable. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Unwatchable, crazy, l- lunacy, like, the poster child for exactly the type of things that we make fun of on this podcast. Like, yeah. character names that obviously are from a book. <gasps> Boy, tell me about it. Fania Farley or whatever the hell we're Fania talking Fania Farley. Coleman Silk. Uh, Gary Sinise plays an, uh, a novelist named Nathan Zuckerman. Yeah, like, the recurring uh, uh, Philip Roth character, Nathan Zuckerman. Hey, did you ever read? We'll get into it, but like, were you? Did you have to read a lot of Philip Roth in like school or you know no. for yourself? No, neither did I. So I, I feel like I'm coming I've... at this from a deficit. I know Philip Roth like culturally, and I know the things that upset people about philip roth and i remember the girls episode where they talk about american bitch so it's like i know philip roth as a thing that exists in the culture and why he exists in the culture yeah um but at least until and i'm sure we'll talk about it at least until indignation came out it was like he's kind of an unadaptable author at least in that like they make bad movies out of his books um yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to get into. There's a lot. There's the Philip Roth of it all. There's the Bill Clinton of it all. There is, you know, the Miramax. We're going to be hitting on a lot of this. But also, this is part of our, this is part three of our mini series on the Oscar buzzed films of 2003. So when we decided we were going to do a mini series on the films of 2003, I feel like the human stain was if not at the top of my list of movies I thought we should talk about, it was, like, in the top two. Oh, absolutely. I was like, we have to do this, because this movie really does. It's the Stefan of, you know, of 2003 Oscar buzz, <laughs> in that it has everything. It has Anthony Hopkins, Miramax stuff, Nicole Kidman stuff, literary adaptation, um former real world cast member former real world cast members former <laughs> or future wait yes no 
at this point it would have been current west wing cast members like the 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 spread of this cast is actually really interesting um and we'll fully dive into that one we'll fully get into it and we'll i think we'll fully get into the performance that i would completely stand by saying that it is it deserves a any modicum better movie. There is a performance in this movie that's great. I think we both have the same one. I might have even like two, but we'll we'll see where we get. Okay. We will get there. Yeah. But obviously we're talking about the human stain. Joseph, what the fuck is a human stain? Considering that so much of the beginning of this movie references the Bill Clinton impeachment, I'm a little worried what the oh, human stain is I supposed to refer to. to. Philip Roth. Philip Roth, like Just throwing words together, like that. I'm sure there's something accident. that's beautiful and poetic on the page, but it's one of those titles what? that sounds like it means something, but it really doesn't. And the only thing, yes. honestly, that it really might mean is an inside joke about the Monica Lewinsky's cum stained dress. Like they mention it in the first scene. The first scene, by the way, which Jeff Perry from. Uh, um, scandal and other things, but you know, Laurie Metcalf's ex-husband uh, is in that first scene and then never again. And I was just like, oh, I like him too. So like, clearly like the parade of character actors truly never ends in this movie. Yeah. The movie opens on this like college campus and you hear these men having a very 1998, like disgusting conversation about the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton scandal. And it's like, I wanted to like, Yes, I will say it. I was watching this movie on my phone. I wanted to hurl my phone <laughs> into the sea, never to be well, seen with, again. With such sample lines as like, if you'd have fucked her, she'd have never gone to, she'd never told anybody about it. Like, it, and like, it is supposed to be gross, but yes. it's also, I, it's I, also maybe a, Philip yeah. Roth is much more eloquent or like more nuanced in like this discussion and re like realizing this type of male grossness and this disgusting like interaction between them well let's get past the boilerplate stuff because i want to actually like once we're past that i want to talk about to start what i think philip roth was doing with this book because the book comes out in 2000 like it's not very much sooner than the movie like it's a very quick turnaround um and clearly like there were, you know, this, you know, there were moments. There's, this was a moment in, in history that was uh, waiting there to be sort of, like, captured by him. That clearly he thought this was a seminal moment, no, no pun intended, um, mm. in American history. But anyway, I, I, I want to get to that after we do the boilerplate and we do the 60-second plot. Well, then we should say that The Human Stain, it was directed by Robert Benton, noted Oscar winner, um, specifically for Kramer versus Kramer, but then also screenplays as well. Um, it was, however, written by Nicholas Meyer, um, as we've mentioned, adapted from Philip Roth, starring Anthony Hopkins, Nicole Kidman, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris, uh, Wentworth Miller, shout out to Prison Break fans, Anna Devere Smith, uh, Real Worlds, Jacinda Barrett, and of course, our favorite gal pal, Margot Martindale. Indeed. And then they open this movie on Halloween Day of 2003. <laughs> yes. Trick yeah. or treat. Yeah. Trick. I'll just say it. It was no trick. Joseph. 
It was not a treat. Um, you better have picked up some candy in the lobby. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to get this ball rolling, Joseph, would you like to give our listeners a 60-second plot description? Um, yeah, I would. It's going right, to be a lot because there's, there's a lot of nooks and crannies in this movie. Yeah, try not to get caught up on the character names that we Ugh, love to oh hate. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. If you are ready, I will start the clock. I am ready. All right. Your 60-second plot description for The Human Stain starts now. All right. Anthony Hopkins plays a man named Coleman Silk, who is a classics professor at a fictional New England college, who gets, if not put on leave, or if not fully fired, then put on leave for making a racial slur in a college classroom. He said He says that he used the word spooks to mean ghosts, but it's like... We can talk about whether that was like intentional or not. Anyway, his wife dies of a stroke from all the stress of it, and he sort of rebels against the school and the political correctness of it and goes to a local author named Nathan Zuckerman to tell his story. His story is that, like, for real, 30 seconds. he's a black man who's been passing as a Jew his entire life, and so we get flashbacks where Wentworth Miller is the young Coleman, and he's from this black family, Anna DeVere Smith is his mother, Harry Lennox is his father. He can pass, though, so he decides he wants to... uh, have white girlfriends. He brings Jacinda Barrett home to the family and she freaks out. So he decides from now on, I'm going to deny my black heritage. And he does. And Coleman then in the, in the present tense is dating a janitor named Fania Farley and her ex-husband kills him. time. I made it. You kind of made it. I kind I mean, of made it. It took a while to get into Nicole Kidman's Fania Farley. Here's what I'm going to say about the human stain is the, the unique thing about this movie is it is the rare movie where the Nicole Kidman parts are the worst parts. Uh, Nicole is definitely like she's not bad you know what it made me think of she's not bad like it's but those parts are the worst parts it reminded me a lot of and like I don't necessarily want to get into this but it reminded me a lot of Destroyer where it's like she wants to try something that is so against what she is used to be known as because like Fanya Farley could have totally been perceived as one of those D-glam type things, and she would just won an Oscar for being D-glam, but at the same time, she's, like, doing perfume ads, magazine covers, and, like, well, and she, she's she, supposed to be playing, like, poor white sleazy trash in She this de-glammed movie. for the hours, but she's still, like, a poet with yeah. a country house. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And servants. So, like, it's a different thing, whereas this one, she's beautiful. She is, like... Yes. unworldly beautiful like it like, like a crappy hairdo with like right. curly a bad hairdo hair. yeah. 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 yeah 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 and tank tops yes which is funny because nicole kidman started off her career with almost always curly hair but like yeah that's... dead calm is nothing but her curly hair yes, and she's in a tank top but which which but it makes it interesting because you're right she cut she she doesn't fully ever fall into this this woman who is you know, lower class and who who holds sort of a class resentment. There's a lot of there's a lot to this movie and the book about race and class and how sometimes they intersect and sometimes they don't. And it tries to sort of get this irony of like he may be a black man, but oh, she's you know, but he out sort of he outranks her in privilege. This movie doesn't really get into privilege. Thank God this all existed before questions 
before you know white privilege became like a buzz topic because this movie would have had a lot to fucking say about that let me tell you if a smarter person could i mean not to say robert benton isn't smart but like does not handle this material with any level of grace and like it's so cringy particularly with some of the leaps it makes i think between those things um like you mentioned in the 60 second plot description that his wife dies from the stress of this. No, she like has a stroke at hearing the news that it all, that's a very, very cheesy scene. scene. Yeah. That pulls away dramatically. And I think it's Rachel Portman does the score and the score is bad. So the, the scene, I I just want to reiterate the scene because it's, so he comes home and he's all in this sort of like fit of peak about what's just happened. It's just happened. It happened that afternoon. They just had a hearing for him getting. Does it? Is it? Is it that he gets let go? I can't remember. Or that it's just like suspended. Whatever. Uh, essentially, disgrace. he's losing his job. He's losing yeah. his job. Yeah, in disgrace. So he comes home the like afternoon of this, tells her this for the first time. And she's sort of like kind of admirably like springs into action being like, we're going to have a two pronged attack. And I was like, a two pronged what, Hillary? Like, it's really kind of like the, the, the allusions to the Clinton thing are really kind of funny in that like, oh, he's got a wife who's going to like fight back on his behalf, too. And um, except it's all too much for her. And she's like, something's wrong. And she sort of like collapses into him. And then the camera pulls back, you're right, and then it's this Rachel Portman score. Not one of my favorite Rachel Portman scores, I will also say. Very Um, mawkish. It gets very jazzy, too, in a way that I didn't appreciate. But so it's pulling back and pulling back, and I swear to God, I kept being, like, imagining the director off-camera being like, and your arm drops now. Because all of a sudden it's just, like, it backs up, backs up, backs up, and before she's, like, clutching him, and then, like, her arm falls dead. And it's just like, oh, she died. (laughs) I, think, I thought of Rachel McAdams in Game Night, just like, oh, she died. <laughs> oh, no, she died. Oh, no, she died. Um, but, yeah, so that's a bad scene, and it's it won't be the last one. So oh. then he kind of goes crazy in that, like, he sort of burrows into himself and his own self-pity, and he seeks out Gary Sinise as this writer, this recurring Philip Roth character named Nathan Zuckerman, who I think is also in American Pastoral and yada yada. And, Mm -hmm. like, those scenes are also where, like, the the through line of this Hopkins character is that he's very much, he's taking umbrage at everything. And the interesting thing about the movie, and I don't mean good, but I mean interesting thing about the movie is... The movie never calls him on that taking of umbrage. Like, it never, like, gives occasion for you to be like, oh, he's wrong. The movie feels like he's right from the beginning of the movie to the end. And he's never Mm -hmm. asked to, like, we we learn more about his past. We learn, and (laughs) to the point where learning about his past in this movie is never an occasion for the adult's coleman silk to sort of reflect on his life and his choices and what he might have done differently and how he might not be as righteous in the moment as he thinks he is no what it is occasion it's an occasion to have everybody else talk about how right he was because he couldn't have been racist in saying that thing because he's actually black like him being black is his get out of jail free card and what it 
what it, it felt like to me. Sorry, I I I I, I no, don't keep need to pull you over. What it felt like to me was, and that's what I feel like the prime mover of this book turned movie is, is that in this era of, you know, Bill Clinton being torn asunder by this, what was partially a tabloid scandal, um, that you have this older novelist, older, older liberal, but like, you know, older moneyed liberal, which is not the same as, you know everybody yeah. else and in, in, in on the left let's say um sort of raging at this idea of like look what we've succumbed to with political correctness and you can't even say a thing and i bet if i said you know i bet if i said the word spook that i would probably be fired and then creating this get out of jail free card for this hypothetical situation of this person who is not like it's not like Coleman Silk is the Philip Roth story, but he's certainly of this kind of strata of human that Philip Roth would see himself among, right? Older, certainly. intellectual, Jewish, this whole thing, um, and be like, what would what would be my bulletproof vest here? What would give me the most sense of righteousness? Like, mm-hmm. it's cause Coleman Silk being actually black in this movie feels like the one up to a to. I have a black friend. I think that's especially a problem when it's we largely see this character played by a white actor and not a light-skinned actor of color. Like there are actors that could have pulled that this narrative off that we would believe that he would be passing as a white Jew. Yeah, I don't necessarily have a problem with that per se, but I do think it undercuts I think it goes to the idea of um, that you you are essentially imagining this get out of jail free card for this type yes. of character without ever wanting to burrow beneath his skin, no pun intended. I do feel like the best scenes of the movie are the flashbacks. I think that's at least where yeah. the movie sort of comes alive. You get Wentworth Miller, who is uh, whose father is black, so with that sort of that tracks in this in this story but his parents are anna devere smith and harry lennox harry lennox you might remember from the matrix sequels or i remember from dollhouse that wonderful underappreciated show (laughs) dollhouse anna devere smith of course playwright but also was on the west wing genius love her absolutely love her she is she the one who you think gives the award-worthy performance Yes. Yeah, she's great. She's great in this. I also think Wentworth Miller is very good. He was an interesting one where he, this was before Prison Break, but by this point, he had already been on that show Popular, the Ryan Murphy show Popular, mm-hmm. where he played a cheerleader, the only male cheerleader on the cheer squad, the sort of, you know, main focal point of the drama of that show. And he was the the episode that debuted him is called all about adam and it's essentially a play on all about eve and he's sort of eve harrington's his way onto the cheer squad and he is sinisterly gay in a way that i love it's like it is very sort of like campy i can't feel like i can't use the word camp now since the fucking met ball because i feel like i have to like define my terms and like look up susan sontag and fucking whatever and just whatever you know what you're using it in the context of talking about popular that is camp thank you okay so he's like super like campy villain and he's very gay and very 
fantastic on that show. And he was only in maybe like two or three episodes total. But it's interesting in that Wentworth Miller was in the closet for a long time and like had mm-hmm. like actually like denied that he was gay or whatever, including well past the point that he played so wonderfully convincingly gay on Popular. And it wasn't until years after Prison Break even that he came out as gay. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting little, like, you know, dovetailing of he played this character in The Human Stain who very decidedly wanted to deny his roots, his blackness. And through that context, it is actually very interesting watching his performance. Yeah, I'm saying. Um, So those are the best parts of the movie. The 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 watchable but not good parts of the movie, I think, are the parts with Hopkins where he gets sort of all up in his, you know, high dudgeon about everything. And then Mm -hmm. I think the worst parts of the movie are the parts with him and Kidman and they're kind of, to even call it a romance feels dumb. They don't answer that question. Like, and maybe that's part of the point. Like if he truly loved, there's the thing where he says, he's like, she's not my great love. She's not my first love, but she's my last love, which is just like, feels like a cop out too, because you don't ever really feel like he loves her. And so they meet at for the her, post office. She, he's just like there. They meet at the post office when he has to like, when he shows up after they've closed and he like convinces her to let him in for two seconds to buy a book of stamps, which like, honestly, just there's other places you can buy stamps, but anyway, and that's sort of the only, like they're in bed, like a scene and a half later. It's insane. And they don't really have much chemistry. And she's sort of, she's objectified in the visual language of it. But like, it's not like I'm clamoring for Anthony Hopkins nude scenes, but like the fact of it is we barely see him, even with a shirt off and we see her fully naked a lot. Mm -hmm. Part of this is also that I watched eyes wide shut last night. It was on TV last night. So I watched it again. (laughs) And so I'm like, I feel like I'm really getting a lot of objectified Nicole Kidman in the span of 12 hours. Much different ends. um, Yeah. And different narrative purposes. And then her (laughs) ex-husband is Ed Harris who, and it's funny because they were just in the hours the year before Kidman and Harris. And don't Um, forget also Margot Martindale. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is interesting. So three three cast members from The Hours, and I'm trying to see if it's three West Wing, because Anna Devere Smith was the West Wing, Clark Gregg is in this movie, he was on the West Wing, and I think maybe that's all there is. That's all there is. But anyway. You know who else we didn't mention is in this movie and also has a really, really great scene is Carrie Washington. Oh, yeah. A scene that fully could have just been cut out of the movie where she recognizes... She clocks him, yeah. Um, the young Coleman from high school and knows that he's black and sees that he's dating Jacinda Barrett, a white girl, and, like, without even saying the thing, fully just, like, reads him down to size for it. Yeah. And, like, I'm sure we'll get into, and we don't have to do it right now, the, like, tragic scene where he... Uh, the confession actually comes out that he is going to live as a white man to his mother and she that's the scene um, of the film that's the big scene scene of the film like those the best scenes in this movie are the ones that actually allow him to be criticized for what he's doing particularly the pain to his family um 
and just the self, how far he's taking his self hatred. Yeah. Those are the best scenes in the movie that actually allow that to happen because otherwise he's just kind of going on about his day. And it's really, it's, it's difficult to watch like passively because he doesn't ever, it's like it doesn't affect him almost. Yeah. At least as Anthony Hopkins plays it, like it's the, almost this non entity. And maybe there's some point to that. But it's really, really frustrating. There is something that I read uh, when I was looking up the Wikipedia entry for the book. And it was that Roth himself had mentioned, yes, uh, he said he wrote this book in sort of a trilogy along with American Pastoral and I Married a Communist. Uh, as a trilogy to reflect periods in the 20th century that he thought were the historical moments in post-war American life that have had the greatest impact on my generation. So the three periods were the McCarthy years, the Vietnam War, and the Clinton impeachment. And it's really telling that two of those things hold up today and one of them doesn't at all like i don't Mm -hmm. think if you asked anybody today what are the three periods of post-war american life that defined it you would not include the clinton impeachment in part because 9-11 happens so soon after it and Mm -hmm. you know wipes the whole slate clean right so i think if you were going to do that trio today you probably would have you'd certainly would have vietnam you'd probably have mccarthy And you'd probably have 9-11. And I think that sort of nearsightedness of nearsightedness, farsightedness, whatever is going to make my metaphor work the best, um, of thinking that the Clinton impeachment was on par with McCarthy and Vietnam because you were so close to it, that's really reflective in this movie. In Mm -hmm. In this sense of you know, Hopkins feeling like he is among the last vanguards of this old pre-politically correct system, right? right? And it just feels like a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, or at least signifying, you know, the dying out of this certain, you know, generational yeah. sentiment that, like, Honestly, but that's still grafting it onto the movie in a sense, I think, because I can buy a version of what the novel probably is that's like kind of a tapestry of all of these things. Yeah, I, I mean, I shouldn't other. talk about the intent of the novel as much as I do because I did not read it. No, what I think it's part of the problems with this movie and like why this movie fails is that like all of those things, like how the Clinton impeachment scandal is tied into race and is tied into specifically this character. It feels very nebulous to the point that it is sometimes borderline offensive and sometimes outright offensive with kind of the gracelessness that it handles this. Oh, and it's, I, sorry, finish your thing. I no, just that was my thing. thing. <laughs> that was my thing, saying that the movie is a pet. I remembered the third West Wing uh, recurring player, and that's Ron Canada, who showed up in the later seasons of the West Wing as a uh, foreign policy guy. But he's the guy who gives the eulogy at the end of the movie, because, you know, spoiler. Which is so. Hopkins, is like Hopkins and Kidman get, get driven into the lake. By the way, second time in two years that Nicole Kidman plays a woman who dies in a body of water. 
anyway. Um, Ron Canada, who was this colleague of Hopkins, who was there at the, like, hearing when Hopkins gets accused of making the racial epithet, who doesn't say anything in his defense. And... Um, that and then they cart him out for this funeral, and keep in mind he is the black man saying, "I should have known he wasn't racist." I should have known he wasn't racist. And shame die. on all of us for not defending this man. And you I was can just kind like, of see how, like, in these type of situations, especially these type of higher education institutions, that they would do that and cart someone out like that. But that's not what the movie is doing. You know who I bet loved this movie. Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Right? Right? Remember when Alec Baldwin decided he was going to retire from public life forever because people called him on using the word faggot at at cameraman? Like, it reminds me of that. It reminds me of everybody who's ever Mm -hmm. taken umbrage. Or, like, Jerry Seinfeld and Louis C.K. Do you know what I mean? Like, that kind of... It's that kind of um, mentality to me. Mm -hmm. And it's very annoying. It's an incredibly uncomfortable watch. Like, seriously, listeners, if you want to just set your television set on fire, watch (laughs) this movie because you will want to, like, chuck it out the window, take a hammer to it. This is, I don't know. I mean, some of it is our contemporary context. It also feels like it's very fresh, like the way people were just, like, I don't know. I mean, there are movies that still get away with the type of shit this movie pulls. But, like, it's very... I mean, yes, there's pieces of it that are good, specifically what Anna DeVere Smith is doing. Um, She's such a wonderful actress. I feel like the writing in those scene, in that particular scene, isn't, I mean, it's not bad, but it's not up to the level of what she and Wentworth Miller are delivering. And I mm-hmm. think so much of it is in her inflection. The way she says, because the whole thing in the scene is he's come home to say that he's met a girl and he's never going to bring her by and he has decided told her that her his parents are dead right he said that his yes he said that his parents are dead and she's once he says that she's you know sort of taken aback and her breath is knocked out a little bit but then she's sort of one step ahead of him in this conversation and she says we have children yes i suppose so you aren't gonna let them see me, are you? My grandchildren. Mom, you'll tell me, sit in the waiting room in Penn Station at 11.15 a.m. I'll walk by with my kids in their Sunday best. That'll be my birthday present five years from now. And you know I'll be there. But aren't you taking a risk having children? The suspense will be unbearable. Suppose they don't pop out of her womb as white as you. Won't you have some explaining to do? Will you accuse her of adultery with a Negro? She only breaks down at the very end. But yeah, like, I don't think he even sees her cry. I don't think he does either. He cries in the scene, very mm-hmm. sort of like slightly. 
it's it's just really good and i really feel like you know the writing is okay but i think it's the acting that really sells it there yeah she's so wonderful god i love her so much but so i you wa- know who should be the fourth member of the hours that is in this movie anna devere smith can you imagine if she was in the hours? Okay, if she was, what's well, interesting? She kind of plays the Alice and Janney in the hours in. Can you ever forgive me? Honestly, I was gonna say I don't want to sacrifice Alice and Janney. I don't she either. Play that character so that that and can you ever forgive me exist in the same universe? God, imagine. So I want to I want to back out of the actual discussion of the movie for a second because I want to talk about Philip Roth because he is. He's a really interesting figure when you talk about literary adaptations of movies because he's this like hugely renowned and revered American author, although not uncontroversial. And mm-hmm. he's so synonymous with a very specific type of American male novelist. And obviously also like inextricably bound into the identity of like Jewish maleness as well, which like I can't speak to, but like whenever you hear you know, him talked about, the, you know, his identity as a Jewish man is obviously hugely important. But it's also this idea of this sort of id-driven sexual uh, uh, male of the 1960s and 70s. This kind of, you know, the carnal John. knowledge era uh, yeah. male kind of. Do you know what I mean? And Other examples being like John Irving. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about Irving when we talked about The Door on the Floor. And yeah, very, very similar. And Irving's another, I, I think Irving's a good exa- uh, good comparison because Irving's another one who they've tried and tried and tried with adaptations and some have done better than others. And Irving, I think, has a better batting average because World According to Garp was so good and got, you know, Glenn Close a nomination and There's Lifgow, more I think, adaptations that have actually been done too. Right. Well, so, so I wanted to sort of like run down the history of Philip Roth because he's got... Uh, 1969, Goodbye Columbus, gets adapted into a film directed by Larry Pierce, who that name doesn't ring a bell, but I looked it up. And this guy directed in uh, Good, Goodbye Columbus is 69, but then in the 70s, he did adaptations of The Bell Jar and A Separate Piece. Neither one of them I ever hear about, but it's just like, oh, that was his thing, I guess, was literary adaptations that were very forgettable a decade later. But that was Ally McGraw and Richard Benjamin. Richard Benjamin was then the lead in Portnoy's Complaint, which um, 1972, Portnoy's Complaint, that was directed by Ernest Lehman. So that was, you know, a big one. Richard Benjamin, by the way, if you don't recognize the name, if you look him up and you don't maybe recognize the face, he was an actor who also became a director, directed various films of varying quality. I know he directed Marcy X, but he is, of course, <laughs> dear to my heart because he's dire- he directed Mermaids. So Richard Benjamin will forever be uh, bulletproof in that. But the so, glorious mermaid. So after Port- Portnoy's complaint, the movie... Nothing, no adaptations, no film adaptations are made until The Human Stain. It really, like, laid fallow for, like, 30 years. But then after... with people trying to do American Pastoral... All the time. And it always falling apart. Constantly. Right. American Pastoral, the great Philip Roth novel, the great sort of, like, that's the one, right? That's, like, the ideal one. American Pastoral is about... um, Well, we'll get into it when we talk about... So after The Human Stain, which, by the way, is a huge failure... Then all of a sudden, the ball gets rolling, weirdly enough, on the Philip Roth adaptations, where Elegy is in 2008, directed by Isabel Quachet. How, how do we pronounce her last name? 
uh, Quachet or Quassette. Okay. Um, starring Ben Kingsley, Penelope Cruz, Patricia Clarkson. Then, weirdly enough, he has <laughs> the worst film at TIFF in two out of three years, which... The Humbling in 2014, directed by Barry Levinson, with Al Pacino and Greta Gerwig. You've never heard of it for a reason. It's awful. And then American Pastoral, two years later in 2016, directed by Ewan McGregor, also starring Jennifer Connelly and Dakota Fanning. So American Pastoral is about, among many other things, if you want to boil it down to like the most like actionable plot element, Dakota Fanning plays the daughter of Ewan McGregor and Jennifer Connelly. She's a stutterer, and she's also an anti-war protester, and she ultimately takes part in the, uh, the bombing of, I want to say, a post office... Office. I think like, I remember that from the trailer. Yeah. I haven't read the book. And then she has to like go and into hiding or whatever. And but it's also about like American the Amer you know, American male family man, yada yada yada. There's a lot going on. But that's the bulk of it. It's terrible. The movie version of it is really bad. But then sandwiched in between well, not sort of in between, but also in twenty sixteen was Indignation, directed by James Seamus, with Logan Lerman, Tracy Letts among other people, which is great, I think. I think Indignation really is really, fantastic. really good. And then upcoming, HBO is doing a miniseries, I want to say, or maybe just an actual series, for The Plot Against America, which is his sort of historical fiction novel where what if FDR had been defeated by a Nazi-sympathizing uh, Charles Lindbergh for the presidency in the late up to World War II and the sort of like... It's not quite the man in the high castle, but it's it's um, you know alternate history. That mm-hmm. should be at least interesting. That book came out when I was working at my college library, and so I remember that being like kind of a thing. So yeah, I think it's I think he's one of those authors. Some authors take very very well to film, and even like so, it's not like you can't be a celebrated author who does really well with film, but like sometimes. You know, Grisham Grisham takes to the to the screen better than somebody like Philip Roth, and that's sort of the way it is. I think one of our other contemporary examples of this is um, Franzen, who's like had a bunch of different failed projects. Oh, a lot of to be a lot of false starts with the corrections coming to coming to the screen. I think there was an HBO. Speaking of you and McGregor, yeah. Speaking of you and McGregor, yeah, they have that pilot that we will never see. Yeah, I would, I would. Get on my hands and knees to HBO. Who was that? Who was directing that? I'm pretty sure it was Bombback. Right. You're right. Wow. That would have been very interesting. So yeah. the movie is directed by Robert Benton, who you mentioned, three-time Academy Award winner. He uh, For writing and directing Kramer versus Kramer, he also won a writing award for directing uh, Places, in, Places the Heart. in the Heart. He directed Which, Sally I mean, Field. Just to her... talking about what these themes are, like, is this really the person who you think is going to make this movie well? I well, don't know. It's interesting. Like... So Kramer versus Kramer is kind of the, the great holy grail of – of cinema in that it's the last, it's not the last, but it was this big, like, you know, it's a movie about two adults getting a divorce and it was a fucking blockbuster and the Oscar winner for best picture. And it represents Mm -hmm. this sort of era of American filmmaking where things could be good and popular and didn't have to have special effects and yada, 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 you know? And so I think Robert Benton sort of has a place in 
a lot of people's sort of fondest parts of people's memories because of that, because Kramer versus Kramer was this sort of idealized movie for grownups, you know, to, <laughs> to steal a phrase. Yes. And then places in the heart 84. So that's Sally Field's second Oscar. That's her. You like me right now. You like me Oscar. Then Billy Bathgate in 1991, which is notable because Nicole Notorious Kidman's in that. Notorious Bomb. Right, Notorious Bomb, but Nicole Kidman's in that movie. I believe she got a Golden Globe nomination for that. And She so, also got very naked in that. See? Robert Benton, Nicole Kidman getting naked. It is a theme. Uh, he did that movie Twilight in 1998 that very recently I remember coming across that title. And it's Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon, and someone. Reese Witherspoon. And I was like, I've never heard of this thing in my entire life. But bef- it, Because it has died to the algorithm. Right. Before that, he did Nobody's Fool with Newman in 94. That gets Newman his second last Oscar nomination. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people and thought And a nomination for won. Benton. What's that? And a nomination for Benton as well. Oh, for writing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people thought Newman should have won that year. I... Saw that movie when I was too young to appreciate it. I should see it again, I feel like. Yes. And then, yeah, Human Stain in 2003, and then this movie Feast of Love in 2007 that, like, I want to say Greg Kinnear was in it. Nobody yes, really. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I think you could but safely I... say Benton was past his prime in 2003. And I don't know what he brings to this. This doesn't feel like a Robert Benton movie. This feels like a Philip Roth movie. Like, that's the authorial voice I feel coming through most strongly. See, I still kind of get, like, the, a, an anonymous authorial voice that feels like a director that could be a Robert Benton because there's kind of this glossing over of all of these themes where it's like, it's more about commi- um, conveying a mood of prestige throughout this whole thing. Like, it is about something serious and therefore we think this is good. Yeah. Um, that's like the real kind of killer of this movie and you have to wonder if that's because it was put through the harvey machine or the harvey meat grinder Um, that's possibly true there is something that feels a little bit abashed about this movie that in 2003 which again the book was before 9-11 the movie was after 9-11 there is something that feels undeniably abashed about this movie coming at you after 9-11 and asking you to be this offended on behalf of what's happening to this mm-hmm. to this college professor which okay i want to put this question to you do you believe a that coleman saying spook was fully benign and he meant it as a you know as a synonym for ghost he the thing in the movie is he mentioned he notices two students names on the roll call who have never been in class all semester and he says are they people or are they spooks and it turns out those two students are both black students and they they file a complaint and first of all were they never in class truly or were you never taking notice of them i think it is even if he did not intend it that way i think it is lunacy to suggest that he would not be more cognizant of what that word choice would mean do you feel like the movie is aware of that because i feel like that's a two-pronged thing on one level i think his character the movie tries very hard to sell us his version of right 
But I think it that how that went down. to the movie's detriment because I think if the oh, movie absolutely. had made it more ambiguous because you do see signs where like when he leads up to you know to saying that in class he's clearly annoyed he is clearly like you know the impeachment and the sort of you know what's going on with all that has him on edge sort of you know the his sensibility wise I, I don't I don't think this movie is in any way really interested in critiquing him and the way that he might be up his own ass. I think it, this movie I think it's a better is rejecting movie him. At, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think, I think that's why the movie almost doesn't work because also um, you get that because scene. he's a character like built on self-hatred instead of him being like a tragic figure. This movie treats him like a hero, but you also, and you also get that scene in the flashback where um, young Coleman Wentworth Miller is doing something with boxing or else, you know, whatever, something sporty. And he uses mm-hmm. the N word as a way to sort of differentiate himself and a way to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, further, you know, closet himself essentially. And I kept waiting for the movie to draw a more direct line between, well, he was using racial epithets. Then it's not just, you know, the fact of him being black didn't prevent him from using a racial epithet then. And like the movie has that part, that, scene in the movie for a reason right yes clearly we're we're supposed to you know think that and maybe the fact that i am thinking that means the movie did its job right except i don't feel like that is ever it doesn't that through line never really makes it to the hopkins character yeah it's it doesn't have really any take on who he is or like or like what the actual implications of his behavior are yeah. In a grander sense or like how it's representative of the themes it's trying to explore. I'm not even fully I don't even think I get whatever this movie is trying to say specifically about race. I mean, like it definitely feels like it's coming from a lot of white people talking about how hard it is to be black and what that yeah. self-hatred is. You can't even say spook like. anymore. Like okay. Exactly. Um in like again that is even offensive but i don't know i think that this movie is playing with fire in a lot of different ways that it thinks makes it more serious but in the end makes it a bad movie yeah so let's talk about at the 45 minute mark let's talk <laughs> about why this movie had oscar buzz which is it was one of the big, it wasn't the big, but it was one of the big Miramax movies of that year. And and 2003 is a year where Miramax may have gotten it into its head that they could get a couple big Oscar successes. And why don't yeah. you explain why that would be? Well, obviously they had Cold Mountain. We've talked about Cold Mountain each episode. We've kind of said we will probably you know mention it every year because it loomed so large so but large. like it was it was their movie plus kidman and then, kidman and both uh, yep nicole kidman was like in-house at miramax this year um and uh there's also kill bill volume one which like we've also talked about how you know maybe uma thurman was a dark horse but the academy was not ready to take that movie from Quentin Tarantino as seriously as maybe they would today. Then also like on their lower like tier of potential nominations, they had dirty, pretty things, which they get the screenplay nomination for It's the um, Stephen Knight crime film um, directed by Stephen Frears. 
Uh, they had the out of can they got the barbarian invasions which ended up being the foreign language winner now international film they also had the station agent which was their big sundance buy ultimately couldn't get a nomination for it despite the performances the screenplay um and we ultimately couldn't get listeners to make that the listener's choice Uh true um and then really, if you, like, Cold Mountain got however many nominations it did, but really Miramax's Oscar success, and it's like, I still don't understand how they did that, how they pulled this off, was actually City of God, which was a foreign language nominee the previous year, and because the rules are different for what qualifies for that category versus the other categories, it was actually eligible in 2003, um... Because that's when it actually opened in American theaters. Right. Aside from whatever qualifier they did for the foreign language committee. But you don't need Um, to have a qualifier for the foreign language committee. You just have to be the movie that your country chooses. That's submitted. But you do actually have to, like, play... I I don't know what the, the rules were like, but, like, you have to at least have one screening in a New York or L.A. theater, like... I remember the Xavier Dolan movie that everybody hated out of Cannes. That's just like famous French actors screaming at each other like Marion Cotillard. Mm-hmm. It played like one screening in New York, like literally one, um, just to be eligible. Um, I know that because I am crazy. But the interesting but thing like, is, so it's coming off of, I want to underline this, because it's we're coming off of 2002, which was the best Miramax Oscar year ever. Chicago wins. Chicago gets 12 nominations. Look that uh, up for me while I pontificate. Along right? those lines. But Chicago also like makes them fluid for like very expensive Oscar campaigns because that was a $170 million movie. So right. it's like they, Chicago, they are flush with cash. The Chicago is the, you know, the wildest success that they have. Gangs of New York is also a Best Picture nominee. 10 nominations, although they did lose all of them. Uh, and then also they had a piece of the hours, which is the other thing. So they had a piece of they at the that very with least, Paramount. right? Shared that with Paramount. They had three of the five best picture nominees that year were Miramax affiliated in some way. Plus, they got Frida in there, which was a you know not an easy get, and uh, and then also Michael Caine was nominated for the Quiet American. So you go into two thousand three and you think like, wow, you know. You would think like they that Cold Mountain would be their only play, but based on 2002, they know that they can diversify, and mm-hmm. they're not limited to just one, and they could get success in a whole lot of areas, which is why even though Cold Mountain doesn't get the Best Picture or Best Director or Best Actress nominations, it still wins for, for Renee. Dirty Pretty Things, as you mentioned, still gets the screenplay nomination. Barbarian Invasion wins foreign. Station Agent gets the SAG nomination for Ensemble. City of God is a huge surprise nominee. Uma Thurman gets a Golden Globe nomination for Kill Bill. Like, their slate is pretty well across the board well represented, except for wah, wah, the human stain. The human stain. Which most people assumed, okay, if Miramax gets only two movies into awards consideration at the beginning of the year you would have said oh so it's cold mountain and it's human stain people were already prepping you know nicole is in lead and supporting contention and you know hopkins who was still 
when would his most recent nomination have been? In 97 for Amistad? Amistad. Right. So it wasn't... Is Amistad still his most recent nomination? Yeah, I don't think he's been nominated since. Yeah. So that wasn't that long ago. Kidman obviously is coming off of her Best Actress win. And Ed Harris is a huge Oscar fave, has still never won, um, but has... Nominated the previous year for the hours. Nominated the previous year for the hours. Nominated in 2000 for Best Actor for Pollock. Like, he's... It's interesting to me that Ed Harris never got the when's he going to win push. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because he's been nominated four times. He kind of had that with the Truman Show, though, right? Five times. Five times, right? Five-time nominee Ed Harris. Uh, he did kind of have that with the Truman Show, and then he didn't win, and then he didn't have it wet for his next two nominations, which is why I think I find that doubly interesting. He should have yeah. won in 1998 for the Truman Show. That is That, I believe, is true. Um, but it's interesting that he's got all these nominations and he's never won, and he's still acting all the time. And you never get this, like, oh, we should get Ed Harris an Oscar. Like, he deserves one. And he does deserve one. You, just, it's, you never hear about it. He just doesn't. He doesn't get those roles, I guess. So to talk about the Miramax slate, though, we've talked before about the Miramax award site and like hounding that. Yes. When we were like early Oscar nerds, and it's like today the studio like prestige sites where like they have the lineup of things they're trying to push for awards, like that's kind of old hat. At this time, this was not like regular for most studios to do it, or at least not to the level that Miramax did that like it was a fairly glossy site but like right. my memory of this maybe with the Wayback Machine would help us um, is that even when Cold Mountain like we knew that that was the thing they were pushing but like the first title on their awards site all year was The Human Stain. That's so funny. I mean no I mean, I don't think it was like this was it was literally until people saw this thing and saw what a massive piece of junk it was. Yeah. It was it did have those expectations cuz you even have cuz we've talked about this already you have that fall preview from EW. I was just about to quote from it. First yeah. slot. Yeah. So it opened in, in in September so it's the first movie mentioned after cuz the Russell Crowe was on the cover and he has the big interview and whatever. But then the first movie at the beginning of September to get the like two page spread with like the full photo on one page and then the full write up on the other is the human stain. And within that lineup, after they mentioned Nicole Kidman's nude scene, which like Jesus Christ, guys, um, they point out in the very first sentence that Robert Benton is a three time Oscar winner and that his cast has 11 nominations and two wins among them. So, like, clearly, it's like when you see a trailer where it's like Academy Award nominee, such and such, for like six people or whatever, that you know that's your giveaway that this movie is going for Oscars, is if they start touting mm-hmm. the Oscar nominations of their cast. And then at the end of it, um, their little sum up cat question says what's at stake and the answer is several seats at the kodak theater come next february so like this was being positioned for big things acting nominations best picture best director all of it and flopola big flopola but i also think it's kind of part of why it flopped is when it premiered at toronto of course the reviews were toxic for it 
and then it like immediately died. There's there was something to particularly this era of Miramax, and like we talked about it when we were like, when did Rabbit Proof Fence actually come out? Right, because it spent two years on Miramax's award site. Right, that like. Harvey Weinstein, aside from what we the evils we know for him now, was known for like juggling around his movies based on what would work and kind of just dumping what failed. Yeah. And this I think is definitely one of those like it didn't get pushed back for a year like say proof did. Right. Right. But like it got dropped like a hot potato. The second that it was clear that it would not be achieving the goals that they wanted for it this movie got dumped i want to talk about jacinda barrett very briefly she's okay in this movie i root for her always i think she i think actually does a good performance with kind of like an impossible well all she's really asked to do is to be sort of a smiley pleasant girlfriend early and then to look devastated when she finds out right. that Coleman uh, comes from a black family. But I, because I was such a real world fan at the time. So, all right. So Jacinda's season of the real world is the fourth one, which is in London, which is sometimes, or at least was sometimes maligned for being too boring, which to me, I never quite understood. And I think what they mostly mean is that like the season prior to that had, Pedro Zamora and Puck and people getting kicked out of the house and whatever. And then the season after that had people fucking in the bathroom and climbing through windows and, uh, wait, there was one more thing. Wasn't there? This is pre Hawaii basically. Oh yeah. What you're saying. But so London smushed in between San Francisco and Miami is sort of like the boring one because like Jay sat around all, all, uh, spring or whatever, all season and didn't do anything except for, like, put on a production of his play, like, one time. And, like... This is when the real world still had, like, plots revolving around them getting a job, finger quotes. Yeah. This was the last season before they made them all get employment together. And... But it's, like, they had, like, actual, like, conversations. Like, there was a whole segment of one episode where the American guys try to explain... Because they're watching the Super Bowl. That's when they still let them watch television. Um explaining American football to the British guy and the German guy, and then both being like, you guys are nuts for watching this. This was also the season where Neil got his tongue bitten off by a fan at a show. And then his girlfriend previous to that, I want to say sent him a, a, a pig's heart with a nail through it for Valentine's day. It was a very interesting season. So Jacinda's role in this season was she was the model and she was Australian and she, um, wasn't always mean, but was sometimes mean, especially to Sharon, who I loved, who was British and a singer and was nice and sweet. And Jacinda sometimes made fun of her. And it was a whole thing, but it was like a whole thing while still being like relatively sweet. Like the worst thing that Jacinda did was she adopted a fucking dog and let it shit all over the house. All right. We all remember legend, legend, the dog (laughs) that shit all over that beautiful little house in London. Anyway, I loved the real world London. And so I always root for Jacinda Barrett. She is of course married to other suits from suits. Gabriel Macht, not suits from suits, but other suits from suits. And 
I don't know. I haven't seen her in much of anything lately. I want to look up her on IMDb right now and see what she's doing. I had pulled her up and I was like, oh, that, that sounds about was right. Was she just she's like doing... lost on a TV show forever? Not really even, right? She's done some TV, but not like regular. But it's things. not like, like one of those things Bloodline. like she was on a CBS procedural. Oh, she was on her 30... most recent credit was Bloodline. 33 episodes which, of like... Bloodline. That kind of counts. I mean, the thing about fucking Bloodline was like it was a thing that existed that like I don't know like who watched Bloodline like stayed watching Bloodline. Nobody. But Nobody. I mean, like, and like, you have every reason to watch Bloodline. You have do I SpaceX Ben mm. Mendelsohn, like Jacinda Barrett weirdly played. Um, uh, Wait, Ben Kyle Mendelsohn Chandler's won wife. an Emmy for Bloodline. <laughs> He won? Yes. Was it a guest spot? No. After they killed him. It was a supporting actor win after they killed him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Bloodline, Bloodline. man. Bloodline, right? Bloodline is wild. Like, wild and boring. Um, Yeah, he got nominated for two Emmys. He won it once for, for playing the dead guy on Bloodline. Honestly... Wait, he got nominated for three Emmys and won the middle one. That's amazing. Good for you, Ben uh, Mendelsohn. Anyway. Bloodline's impact. Um, what I'm saying is, why didn't Jacinda Barrett win an Emmy for Bloodline? She is on the poster. I'm looking at this. It's Kyle Chandler. I remember it feeling bananas to me. Oh, no, wait. Sorry. That's Linda Cardellini. Never wife. mind. Sorry. Yeah. Linda Cardellini's the sister. Okay. That's just like the class of overly grim TV shows about murder that I just, I, I refuse to continue with. Like I watched the first season of Bloodline, but I was like, I, I really Oh, that's even more than I did. And I worked at a job where I should have watched most Netflix things. So you know what? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Anything else we want to say about this movie before we move into the IMDb game? Um, other than it being the story of seven strangers lived, picked to live in a house to find out what happens when people stop being stains and start being human. No! Um, I don't know. I, I will say watching it now is particularly, I don't think you will find a Miramax era movie that is more like awful and uncomfortable to watch in light of what has come out about Harvey Weinstein than this. That's part of the reason why I wanted to smash my phone at the first conversation in this movie with the Clinton scandal, because it's just, if it's not bad enough that this movie, like I said, plays with fire about things that it is not intelligent enough to talk about with any modicum of like grace. It's that you also have the Harvey Weinstein of it all yeah making it extra gross like you've mentioned how like well it is very much like the strata of kidman is sorry go ahead no i was saying the way nicole kidman is like ogled in this movie the way that it kind of just like wallows in female pain in a way um it this is just this movie's fucking terrible (laughs) sorry yeah i agree I just, like, even, like, Jacinta Barrett is fully naked for literally no reason. It's very, uh, it's very male gaze, obviously, this movie. It is very... The very white male gaze. It's very white that. male gaze, and it's also politically, it is 
Um, older moneyed liberals who I wish would stop trying to represent the party. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a Clinton Democrat movie for sure. It's it's upsetting, and like you said, it's like we can't even use this racial slur anymore, and it's truly. Yeah. And then it makes a black guy apologize at the end. It's rough, rough. Okay. At least in 2003, we had the foresight to not fall for this movie, or Oscar had the foresight to not oh, fall for this movie. Nobody because, fell for like, this there's movie. A, there's other things going on in the Oscar year that aren't necessarily yeah. great for this type of thing. However, I do think, once again, Anna DeVere Smith is wonderful. Shout out to the Washington, D.C. critics for giving their her their supporting actress. Yeah. When that's, do you think you, that's, you would put her on your ballot? Well, now I need to take half a second and bring up my ballot because I want to make sure... <laughs> Oh, mine won't be up to date either, but I'll at least have a sense of it. Yeah, she's not even on my long list. That's interesting. Wait, do I have a a cameo category? That's not a cameo performance. It's not, but I thought I might have known I didn't that year either. Okay. Um, no, she probably she should have at least been on my long list, so shame on me. My list that year was Patricia Clarkson and the station agent, who I have giving getting the win. Hope Davis in American Splendor, who had won a bunch of critics' awards and then kind of disappeared by the time it got to things like the Globes and the Sags and Oscar. Shori Agadashlu, who got the Oscar nomination and I loved. Holly Hunter, who got the Oscar nomination and I loved for 13. And Emma Thompson for Love Actually, who I stand by fully. I also stand by because she's on my ballot. Nice. Uh, my ballot also has Holly Hunter. It has Catherine O'Hara for a mighty win. She's on my long list. Um, Shorag Dashlu, as well as you. And I also, hot take, um, I also have Naomi Harris for 28 Days Later. Okay, that's a good one. I have 28 Days Later all up and down this list. It's on my best picture I do list. Too. It's on my best director list. Um, Naomi Harris is a really, really good one. She should at least be on my long list. My long list also includes Catherine O'Hara, um, Melissa Leo for 21 Grams, who we mentioned in one of the previous podcasts on this, on 2003. Um, Laura Linney and Marsha Gay Harden in Mystic River, who I sometimes go back and forth as to how well the movie utilizes them, but I think they are actually both doing good work. I think Laura Linney is asked to do something fucking ludicrous in her last scene, it is. and she's so good at it. She's so good at it. Um, and then, did you, did you ever see the Magdalene Sisters? I never got to see that. No. Which might was, but that's supposed to be good. Was that also that was a Miramax movie also in that uh, that year? Yes, but I don't think they released it until two thousand four. But if I it's on wrong. my two thousand three list here, then it was two thousand three. They really didn't push it in their awards stuff. But Geraldine McEwen, who uh, played the the nun, the head nun in the Magdalene the Sisters, I thought was very good. Geraldine McEwen, who I learned later, played the evil witch in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is yes. only a reminder that we should do Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves for this podcast one of these times. Uh, I love that movie. I'm trying to think of like other supporting actresses that year that I may have not recognized at the time, because you're right about Naomi Harris. You're right about Anna DeVere Smith. 
Um, I don't know why Jennifer Jason Lee is not on that list for in the cut. She probably should be. Definitely when I made that list, I had not seen in the cut yet. So Yeah. Um, Anna Kendrick for camp should absolutely be on a long list. That's definitely a one performance scene, though. If you're going to say that no. about Anna DeVere oh, Smith, absolutely she's in the not. movie, but... She's really good in all of that movie. That She she delivers my very favorite line from that movie, which is nowhere near the ladies who lunch scene, is when they're all sort of getting there and they're seeing each other and she just goes... Is there some place we're supposed to check in? Over there. Is this your first summer? No, I was here last year. Remember? Together. Oh. Which makes oh. me laugh every time. I think she's wonderful throughout that movie. And Independent Spirit Award nominee. So the system backs me up. Um, yeah. Also, the human stain we should mention. Um, AFI doesn't have the weight now that it kind of did. This was the time they did a top 10 um, of the year. And uh, the human stain shows up on it. It was very much, what are you AFI? doing? Yeah, Woof. it's on the AFI Top 10. Jesus. Okay, this AFI Top 10, which, like, <laughs> fully makes sense because, like, even if it's, like, you're not talking about movies that were fully in the running for Best Picture, yeah. like, these were kind of the stories of the year or, like, the stories of the awards race. There was American Splendor, which, like, at the time was, like, the indie success that a lot of critics were pushing. Yeah. Um, and, like, it got the screenplay nomination and nothing else. Finding Nemo, In America, Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, Monster, uh, which, like, the Charlize Theron story probably has more to do yeah. with that. But, like, you can see how, like, the weight of her performance was pulling that. Yeah. Also, Mystic River, The Human Stain, which had fully died, Jesus. like, two months before this list would have come out. Wow. The Last Samurai and Lord of the Rings. The, my true choice for best single scene performance comes from Lost in Translation. Uh, are you saying Anna Faris? I'm super saying in... Anna Faris. You know what? Honestly, like that's the performance I would probably put on my ballot. I would knock someone else out for Anna Faris and Lost in supporting for supporting. Yes, even though it's just that scene. It's more than one scene. Is it? She yes, she has like the scene in the lobby. There's the scene that Scarlett Johansson goes in and sees her in this press conference. That's the scene where right. she says karate. Right, um, you're right. She and is. Then you're right. She, and she's also doing karaoke later. Oh yeah, she's. I gotta watch that movie again just to just for her. She's so great in that. Holy crap! I don't know who I would knock out, but consider her on my ballot. That, so again, a very rich. I might knock and, out Catherine O'Hara, unfortunately. Catherine O'Hara is wonderful in that. The thing with Catherine O'Hara in A Mighty Wind is I think she's even better in Best in Show, and that was the movie prior to this. A Mighty Wind, it's interesting. I I was adding songs from A Mighty Wind to our Spotify playlist, which, by the way, hopefully by the time this uh, podcast is up, we'll have tweeted a link to our Spotify playlist. We made a whole bunch of, uh, put a whole bunch of 2003 songs on the list. Added nostalgia. Added nostalgia. So I was putting out a bunch of A Mighty Wind songs and I went to watch some clips on YouTube. A Mighty Wind is perhaps the number one movie in the category of I love it and I wish I could take one scene out of it and it would be flawless. Can you guess? Uh, the closer. Yeah. The end scene. Yeah. 
with Harry Shearer showing up I know. in drag. It's it makes me Offensive. so mad. But Lost in Translation has the same thing too. Which scene? I, I maybe it's not a one scene thing, but it's like it's 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 a stain on the movie. Sure, but what? But that's what I mean. Like in Lost in Translation, you would have to work so much harder to like pick right. that out, right? Where at least in in a Mighty Wind, if they just cut that scene out, I because it's like the problem with that scene is that it's kind of funny in the way it is performed, but it's so transphobic isn't whatever it's bad it's bad in that like it is it is playing for laughs transphobic is a fair yeah it's playing for laughs the idea that this guy would have come to this realization that he wanted to live his life as a woman it's and it's so easily could just be like chopped off at the end Ugh, damn it i know and it makes me puts a little bit of a stain on old joe's place a song i super love how did we get on this? We've we've gone far afield, my friend. We this are, was a rambly we are just episode. Expanding our 2003 takes, the things we love. <laughs> we shared our best actress. We plan on doing our top tens potentially if we have time. Yeah, we'll do that all. We'll do that all later. Right now, we're going to do IMDb game and get out of here before our listeners revolt. Yes, before our listeners stand outside and make the weather and say, oh, oh shit, no. it's staining. No, no, nope, 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 out, bye, podcast over. <laughs> After we do IMDb game. Joe, do you No, I mean the entire, what? like, the entire idea of this podcast is now over. Oh, okay, Ruby Fuse is going to be the thing that breaks <laughs> us, all right. Um, Joe. Yeah. For our lovely listeners, explain the IMDb game. Sure. Uh, you know IMDb. You look up an actor's name and they give you four titles that they are best known for. This IMDb game posits the idea of what if you guessed it instead of looked it up. So we give each other the names of actors. We try and guess which four movies that they are best known for according to the IMDb algorithm, which is mysterious and confrontational. And we get three strikes before we're out. Two strikes. Well, right. But ideally, the idea was three strikes and you're out. So if you get three wrong, then you lose. But we don't play that way because nobody likes to lose. After two strikes, you get hints. You get the hint in the form of the year that the movie you are missing was made in. And then if you keep getting it wrong, we just keep throwing each other hints because we're nice that way super nice we try to avoid actors who are big in the marvel universe and the harry potter universe because those movies tend to gunk up their profiles and if um, uh any movie on the known for is a voiceover performance or from television we try to let the person know because it's only sporting that way indeed joseph would you like to guess first or give first why don't i give first all right, what do you have? So we mentioned Nobody's Fool, the 1994 movie that directed uh, directed by Robert Benton, which was Paul Newman's in that movie, Bruce Willis is in that movie. It's Jessica Tandy's last movie, and I almost gave you Jessica Tandy, but... I love her. Instead, I am going to give you the other actress in this film, Miss Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith. Okay, truly, if there has been an actress who has been failed by the Hollywood system, it is the 
wonderful, incredible. I'm becoming, I'll become the Lady Gaga. <laughs> Talented, brilliant, incredible, amazing, show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever been done before, unafraid to reference or not reference, put it in a blender, shit on it, vomit on it, eat it, give birth to it. Melanie Griffith, who, like, go back and watch some of those performances. She's a fucking genius. I love her. I love her daughter. Um, obviously, um, I, I need to get into the guessing. Uh, definitely Working Girl is there. It is there, front and center. Sweet. Um, hmm. Where am I going to go next? Uh, I feel like this isn't there but it's such a legendary one bonfire of the vanity no legendary bomb we should do that movie for this podcast as well yeah absolutely okay so it's not there it is not um okay so this movie i definitely need to rewatch it was like a childhood inappropriate favorite um but i think a lot of people are talking about it again and i've at least seen pieces and um a couple podcasts I like have talked about it. Is Milk Money on there? No. Why have people been talking about Milk Money on Because, podcasts? like, out of nowhere, it's been, like, on streaming services huh. everywhere. Speaking of Ed Harris. But, yeah, no Milk Money. Okay, Speaking so you get Ed hints. Has... Your missing right. movies are from 1984, 1986, and 1997. And I will say, Ooh. I don't think I need to give you this hint, but I think there's a, ch- a small chance that one of these movies was on TV, if not first, then, like, it was, you know, qualifying release on in a, in a theater, but then, like, right onto TV. Was that Lolita? It was Lolita. Was that the case? Because that was Showtime, because they couldn't get a U.S. distributor, right. and they put That's it on That's what Showtime. I thought. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, That's Lolita. One of those 80s is Something Wild. Yep. 86, Something Wild. Which is even, like, it feels like Jonathan Demi fans really love that movie, but, like, for the populace is, like, um, niche Jonathan Demi. They used to show it on Comedy Central back when, like, Comedy Central had, like, Saturday Night Live reruns during that era. Yeah. And they haven't done that anymore. Comedy Central. Yeah. What's the other 80 84. Oh, so that's when she first came out. Is it Body Double? It is Body Double. The Brian De Palma film Body Double. Well done. Melanie Griffith. I love you. Bing, bang, boom. Melanie Griffith. I'm trying to think of, like, other right. ones that I might put on. Because, like, Lolita is not a film that, like, this was the, not the original Lolita. This was the 1997 Dominique Swain version of Lolita. Who is, is it Jeremy Irons playing? Uh... Yes, it is Jeremy Irons. Boy, Jeremy Irons spent a good little era there where he was just, like, screwing the daughters of friends and, like, his son, his son's girlfriend and damage and there was a lot of jeremy irons creeper stuff happening jeremy irons is great too i'm trying to think of like Um, other stuff though instead of lolita that i would have put on instead i would have probably gone for i mean milk money's not a bad one born yesterday is an interesting one um i feel like there's just certain movie uh, this is me again trying to like overthink my way through this algorithm i feel like things when they become available on streaming spike up in the algorithm maybe there was a recent example of that and i can't remember which one it was yeah now and then's another movie i'm sort of surprised was not on there 
She's so low build. I know, that, like, I even know. Even of the adult characters, she's the least featured. I know, but it's a very popular film. Anyway, yeah. give me yours. I love that movie. All right, so yours. I went a little more basic. I went to uh, the Philip Roth route. Um Okay, so the cast of American Pastoral, which, of course, eventually we will talk about American Pastoral, um, it's kind of insane. The people that are in this movie, it's obviously headlined by Ewan McGregor and Jennifer Connelly, but there's also Uzo Aduba in this movie, Molly Parker, David Strathairn's in this movie, but I did not go with any of them. I went with Dakota Fanning. Joseph, Dakota Fanning's known for is what? All right. Dakota Fanning. We've done L, right? That's why this sort of seems familiar. We've done uh, yes. L Fanning. Okay, so now we're completing the circuit. Uh, I got to imagine I am Sam uh, is one of them. I should say there is one uh, voiceover. Oh, okay. I got to imagine I am Sam is one of them. I am Sam. Correct. Why don't I know off the top of my head what the voiceover would be? Shoot, that's going to bother me. You're going to be mad. Yeah. I just think if you don't know this off the top of your head, uh, you are going to be mad. Okay. Um, all right. Other stuff from Dakota. Uh, War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, yes. Hmm. Good movie. Bad ending. Um, Working Girls? No. Is that the one with Brittany Murphy? Am I remembering that title wrong? Um, Uptown I Girls. Think... Uptown Girls. Uptown Girls, yes. Working Girl I had in my head because of Melanie Griffith. Um, but not that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hide and Seek? Is that the one with her and De Niro? No, Hide and Seek is not the answer. All right, give me years. So you get to your years. It's 2004, 2009. It may not necessarily help you, but I will say that 2009 is the voiceover. Yeah, that's sort of what I figured. All right, 2004... Is Man on Fire? Man on Fire. That movie is always on like TNT and TBS. Tony Scott movies show up in the IMDb algorithm Mm -hmm. somewhat frequently. All right. 2009 animated. 2009, I feel like, was like kind of a big animation year, right? That was. Yes. She's not in Fantastic Mr. Fox. She's not in Up. Is she the she's the main character of this, right? Uh yes. And is it one is an animated movie where like the main character is like the whole show, sort of? Uh not necessarily. So the title isn't the name of the character? Yes, it is. It is. It is. Um Oh. Oh, wait. Coraline. Yes, yes it's Coraline. She's Coraline. Great movie. I had forgotten. I had forgotten that she was Coraline. Yeah, great movie, wonderful movie. Terry Hatcher is great. The animation on her character is fucking terrifying. <laughs> See, I more so. I don't love Coraline. Really? I gravitate towards the French and Saunders. Oh, bit of Coraline. I mean, that's good too. I just, I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful, one of the best, if not the best, Neil Gaiman adaptations. Anyway, yeah, we like Leica. Yes, we love Leica, and that's funny because that's right because L did the voice in the Box Trolls. So, again, family circuit complete. 
El got the better like a movie. Yeah. I love Any that final thoughts on the human stain? I mean, the okay, the touches of sort of late '90s sexual revolution stuff, where like they mention, where like they mention AIDS and uh, safe sex when Sinise finds out that Coleman's been mm-hmm. having sex with with uh, Fania Farley. And in this very sort of like out of context thing where it's just like, and this, the subtext very much seems to be like, you know, why hasn't the world changed? We have those, these things to worry about, like AIDS and condoms and, or, um, all of the like literary illusions. Oh wait, is it Clark Gregg who gives him a hard time about that? And not Sinise? Yes. It's Clark Gregg. Right. Um, and then the Clark Gregg also mentioned, there's a mention made of, Achilles on Viagra because Achilles was part of the classics lecture that he was giving at the beginning of the movie. And it's just like, it's a lot of straining for, um, for this kind of literary affect that I find very obnoxious. My thing that I found obnoxious, my final note, and it's maybe a little more boring is that, um, This movie was like the cinematic embodiment of that evening tagline that we joked about in our evening episode of like, her greatest secret was her greatest gift. (laughs) This movie is structured as if it is a mystery. And I'm like, what is the mystery? What are we finding out about? And it's like, there's this whole like thing of Ed Harris being interviewed about their death. By Margot Martindale. By Margot Martindale. I mean, it at least gives us Margot Martindale. But then it's like... It feels like everything in this movie is trying to, like, I don't know, have this greater sense of something being unveiled. Yeah. But it never does. Here's what I will leave you with. Anna DeVere Smith and Margot Martindale star in a remake of what? Oh, fuck. The Um, Odd Couple? Grumpy Old Men, but for women? Um, wow. Like Thelma and Louise, but they like survived the Grand Canyon and now they're like mm-hmm. doing stuff. Um, I can just think of it any, you know, countless as like older cops. It's like they're both like last week on the job or rival bookstore owners who Honestly, fall in love. Have them play Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin <laughs> in the Operation Varsity Blues television show. But, like, after they get out of prison. So it's, like, 20 years later, yeah. and they get out of prison. Not 20 years later, but whatever. However many years later that would make the, the ages work. And they get out of prison, and they, like, have to, like, restart their lives. I love it. Mm-hmm. Something. Give us the Andy Smith and Margot Martindale and things. Leads. Yeah. Lead roles. I agree. All right. And that's our episode. Bye. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joseph, please tell our loveliness listeners where they can find more of you. Well, loveliness, you can find me at Twitter, uh, at Joe Reed on Twitter. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Letterboxd, although I haven't updated it in forever because I am useless. But I'm also there, uh, Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D as well. 
And I am on Twitter standing outside in the rain and saying, shit, it's raining at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. Please follow me there. I keep a running list of This Hot Oscar Buzz titles, including direct links to episodes and IMDb game stats. We would also like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Please, a five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. So please uh, make sure we show up to class so that Anthony Hopkins doesn't say something racist again. Uh, That's all for this week, uh, but we hope you come back next week for more Buzz and more 2003.